0: Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Again, that's Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. Jean-Jacques Rousseau once wrote, The first man, who having fenced in a piece of land, said, This is mine, and found people naive enough to believe him, That man was the true founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars, and murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditch and crying to his fellows, beware of listening to this imposter, you're undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody." Ladies and gentlemen, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a fool. To think that the concept of private property is one of the root causes of crimes, wars, and murders is the very essence of foolishness. It isn't the root of conflicts and chaos, but rather one of its chief solutions. You see, what Rousseau seems to forget is that the fruits of the earth don't just spring up on their own and feed us all, at least not very efficiently. No, as we learn from Genesis 3, the fruit of the field comes through painful toil. It comes through blood, sweat, and tears. And to be able to know that when you labor over a piece of land, that you'll be able to enjoy the fruit of it because it's yours. To know that someone else can't simply come in and take it from you, at least not without repercussion. That isn't the source of crimes and murders, but the solution to it. In fact, this is one of the chief reasons that we organize ourselves into societies and create systems of law uh, to govern those societies. We do it in order to provide an orderly system for protecting our mutual interests. The fact is, there's an innate sense of justice in mankind, a sense that we should receive the product of our labor, and when that sense of justice is violated, We're bound to demand action. Now there are two ways that that demand for justice can play out. Either it can play out in a society without laws protecting life and property at the hands of the vigilante, or it can play out in a society with laws protecting life and property at the hands of an appointed judge. Either way, the one who's wronged will demand justice. It's just a matter of whether it will come from their own hands or whether it will come at the hands of a third party. Either way, justice will be sought. And this is where Rousseau goes so terribly wrong. It's the type of justice that occurs in a society without laws recognizing and governing the life and property of individuals that is inherently unjust. The vigilante is never equitable in his justice. He always demands more than what was taken from him because his concept of justice has been marred by his sinful condition. And it's because his justice is actually unjust that the people he punishes actually demand their own kind of justice in return, which is also unjust, and so on and so on goes the cycle of blood for blood as each side tries to correct the other side's wrongs. And when there's a third party that can step in, on the other hand, and act as a mediator to these disputes, and when that mediator is duly qualified to give a disinterested and unbiased judgment, it's then that there's actually hope for a fair result, which will quell the outrage and bring peace. Of course, there's no perfect system of government apart from the rule of Jesus Christ. That's because sin has darkened the hearts and minds of all men. And so even uh, there, there are going to be corrupt rulers. We're bound to have that. Corrupt rulers who will pervert justice for personal gain. And even the very best of rulers are still bound to fail in their judgments from time to time. But that being said, brothers and sisters, I think we have to recognize that we're blessed to live under the government that we do. After all, while we don't live under a government that's absolutely free of corruption, at the same time, I would think most of us would trust that if we take a grievance into the court, the judge will be fairly unbiased in his judgments, and he or she will deliver justice to the best of their ability. We don't have to pay bribes to get a building permit. We don't sit up at night worrying whether or not our government might attempt to bring us up on false charges, either because of our political or religious affiliations. Our government is basically fair. It's not perfect by any means, but it's basically fair. And that's saying something, actually. There are a lot of people who would love to live under the rule of a just government. There are people who would like to live here simply because we live under a just government. However, not only is our government just, but it's also powerful. We live in a nation with the most powerful military on the planet. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because one of the reasons nations form is for the joint defense of their system of government. In other words, we all pool our resources together and fund our military so that other nations, other groups of people can't come in and overpower us and take what we've built and earned. Again, it's about justice. And the fact that we have the most powerful military on the earth means that we have a reasonable expectation for justice in this respect. I doubt any of you sit up at night worrying about whether we're going to be invaded by a foreign power or whether a group of rebels are going to storm into your town and take your kids. Other people in other societies don't have that kind of assurance. They do worry about these things. So again, our government may not be perfect, but I think we can all be very grateful for it nonetheless. However, there's a price that comes with these kinds of rights and privileges. Did you know that? There is. There's a price that comes with these rights and privileges. You see, the the protections of this government aren't just given to anyone. It's given to a particular person. And that's the American citizen. Meaning, if you suffer some type of injustice in another country, you can go to the American embassy and ask for the United States government to act as your advocate. And depending on the situation, they may act as your advocate. That kind of protection isn't promised to just anyone. A German citizen or a Chinese citizen can't go to the American embassy and ask for help. That privilege is given only to Americans. In the same way, only American citizens are granted the privilege of living under the protection of the American military by being permitted to live inside our borders. These are the rights and privileges that are supposed to be granted to citizens alone. And citizenship, ladies and gentlemen, comes with a cost. What's that cost? I think you see it emerge in our country's naturalization oath. The naturalization oath of allegiance to the United States of America, in case you aren't aware, is the oath that must be sworn by everyone applying for citizenship to the United States. And it goes like this, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince potentate state or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. That I will support and defend the constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law. That I will perform noncombatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by law. That I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by law. And that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. So can you start to see the price of citizenship? There are tremendous privileges to citizenship, but they come with a cost as well. And that cost is the willingness to defend the country against any invaders. One must denounce all other allegiances, even one's allegiance to their own homeland, and swear instead to, quote, support and defend the constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That means that if we go to war, you're expected to help defend country if it's so required it means that if you somehow discover a foreign spy in our nation you're supposed to do something about it it means that if you do go to war and if you happen to be captured you won't betray the country's secrets to the enemy in short there's a whole code of conduct that you're agreeing to when you become a citizen when a person takes that oath of allegiance they're saying that from this day forward they're no longer to be regarded as russians or egyptians or indians or Italians. No, from that day forth, they are to be regarded as Americans, and they will act as Americans. Even if if it means fighting their former countrymen, they will do so in order to help defend the rights and privileges of their fellow American citizens. That's a pretty radical concept, isn't it? I doubt we think very often about both the privileges and responsibilities of our citizenship, but they're most definitely weighty. And it's the same way with our heavenly citizenship. There are most definitely privileges that come with being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We have the right, for instance, to live inside the borders of that kingdom, and we eagerly await the day when we'll be able to exercise this right. Our citizenship likewise confers upon us the blessing and protection of God, participation in the Holy Spirit, the hope of a resurrection unto eternal life, pardon for our sins. These are all privileges that are awarded to kingdom citizens only. And yet there are responsibilities as well. There's a form of conduct that we're expected to live by. And this morning we're going to get a sense of what that conduct looks like. Let's go ahead and read our passage for today. Once again, it's Philippians 1, 27 through 30. And in this passage, Paul describes the conduct that's becoming of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that, I, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The title of our current series in Philippians is The Evangelistic Psyche. And that's because the purpose of this series is to explore the sort of mindset that will drive a person to give everything for the advancement of the gospel. Up to this point in our series, our subject has been the Apostle Paul. Paul is a man who has most definitely given everything for the gospel. And up to this point, we've spent most of our uh, time trying to understand what made him tick, what drove him to have this radical dedication. For the advancement of the gospel. And that's all because up to this point, Paul has basically been providing his missionary report to the Philippians. The Philippians, remember, have received this report that Paul's under house arrest, and they're concerned about their old friend. They're concerned as well about what his imprisonment means for the sake of the gospel. And so they send this financial contribution to Paul through a messenger named Epaphroditus, Uh, both to minister to Paul and to try to figure out what's going on, how Paul's doing. So Paul replies, and of course he's telling them everything's going great actually. His imprisonment has actually turned out for the advancement of the gospel. He says the whole praetorian guard has even learned that his imprisonment is for Christ. The the brothers in Rome have also grown more confident in the Lord on account of Paul's imprisonment, and they're proclaiming the gospel with great boldness. And on top of all of that, Paul's starting to get the sense that His time's almost up, either through deliverance or death. His imprisonment is about to end. Now, as we saw last week, Paul would prefer to die, actually, since that would mean he gets to depart and be with Christ. But he tells the Philippians that the more he thinks about it, the more he figures he'll be released so he can minister to them once again. And so it probably won't be long until he's with them in Philippi one more time. That's the basic essence of Paul's ministry report. As we come down to verse 27 now, the attention shifts. Paul directs his focus away from what's happening with him in Rome, and he begins to focus on what's happening with them in Philippi. It would seem that with this financial contribution, Epaphroditus has brought a report about the state of affairs in Philippi, and they aren't entirely good. For one, the saints in Philippi are suffering. You jump down to verses 29 and 30, and Paul notes that, quote It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul, remember, was uh, imprisoned by the secular authorities in Rome. In particular, he was accused of practicing customs that are not lawful for Romans to accept or practice. In short, he was declared to be an enemy of the state. For Paul to say that the Philippians are experiencing the same conflict that they saw he had and now steer that now hear that he still has indicates that they're probably suffering in much the same way. Some of them are likely in prison, and there's a good chance it's for practicing customs that are particularly unroman. What would this look like? Well, I've mentioned it before. Philippi was a Roman colony, meaning that the citizens there were incredibly patriotic. Part of the Roman religion included the worship of Caesar. They burned incense to Caesar. Christians obviously refused to participate in that aspect of Roman allegiance since they worshipped another king, Jesus of Nazareth. And so in all likelihood, the Christians in Philippi are probably suffering for their refusal to participate in this Roman system of worship. Jews were generally exempt from this type of worship. Gentiles, however, were not. And since most of the Philippian believers were probably Gentiles, it stands to reason that they were probably expected to participate in these types of oaths to Rome. Their refusal would have have labeled them as unpatriotic and even disloyal. And in all likelihood, it would have led to their punishment. This is probably what Paul means when he speaks of their suffering the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have. Regardless of the price, precise reasons for this suffering though, we know that the Philippians were indeed suffering for their faith. This is one problem that has been reported to Paul in Rome. The second is that the unity of the Philippian church is actually beginning to disintegrate. This may be related to the persecution they're suffering. It may be entirely independent of that matter. Either way, they're starting to compete with one another. Down in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul urges them to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This tells us that they're probably beginning to compete with one another in some way. So the church is beginning to fracture. That's the second problem Paul is hearing about. The third is probably hinted at in chapter 3, verse 2, when Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There, Paul issues a warning against Judaizers who would seek to pervert the church by drawing them away from a simple faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So there's a kind of doctrinal corruption that's taking place. It doesn't seem to be very serious just yet. It may even be a problem that Paul's anticipating more than it is a present reality in the church. Either way, Paul perceives it to be a threat to the church at Philippi. So Paul gets this rapport, and after he's updated the Philippians on his situation and told them how he expects to see them again soon, he turns his attention to their situation and instructs them on how they ought to conduct themselves in the meantime. Again, verses 25 and 26, Paul says he expects to return to Philippi soon. And then starting in verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The verb up in verse 27. The one that's translated here as, let your manner of life be. That's the main verb in that sense. It's a command. And it's the term, politiomai. And it means literally to be a citizen or to live as as a citizen. You might hear a bit of the word politic in that term. That's because the root of this verb is derived from the Greek word polis, which means city. The city, of course, is the basic unit of government in the Greek system, and so the term polis is closely associated with the idea of state or government. So, you have all these different Greek terms that all use this root to describe some aspect of government. Politeia, for instance, is the word for citizenship. Politouma means an act of administration or a form of government. Well, politouma can be translated as to conduct oneself or to lead one's life. But it literally means to be or live as a citizen. And that's probably how Paul is attempting to shade his use of the term here. He isn't just saying conduct yourself in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's meaning live as citizens in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I say that in part because Paul will come back to this idea later in chapter 3, quite explicitly. Philippians 3, 20, uh, and 21, he says, But our citizenship, or polituma, literally our commonwealth, or state, is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So this seems to be the general sense of the command. Paul wants them to live in a way that's befitting of their heavenly citizenship rather than their earthly one. And this is going to more or less be his focus moving forward for at least the next couple of chapters. He's going to implore them to live in a way that's worthy, not of Roman citizens, but as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as he begins this section, he begins with a succinct summary of just what this looks like, to to live as citizens focused on the kingdom of heaven. So that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time here this morning focusing on. We're going to explore the proper conduct of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. If you recall, I said last week that Paul was accused of acting a bit crazy from time to time, but that when you step back and think about it, his conduct wasn't really that crazy. It was actually quite rational once you consider the realities that he was living in light of. I even said that if we were living according to what we believe, then we would probably look a lot less normal and a lot more like Paul. Well, the chief reality that transformed Paul's behavior was his heavenly citizenship. Paul understood that there was a different kingdom coming and that the resurrection had already guaranteed that it would take place. So it didn't matter what Caesar or anyone else said, Paul was going to obey the command of that king. And this led him to perform some highly unusual behavior in service to the gospel. It might have even looked sort of odd from the outside, but when you consider what Paul sees, it makes sense. It's incredibly rational. With that in mind, I've named today's message Heavenly-Minded Conduct, because this is the way that you and I will act if we're living in light of the same realities, if we live with our eyes set on these invisible truths. I should probably note that this is by no means a comprehensive list, but it describes at minimum how the kingdom citizen is to conduct themselves when they're experiencing the same sort of rejection for the gospel that we've seen first with Paul. And now with the Philippians. Overall, the base word that describes this conduct is contention. Contention. I take this from verse 27. If you look here, verse 27, there's this phrase, standing firm. The word here is staikete and it means to stand firm or to be steadfast. If you can think of maybe a stream with a strong current and what it's Like to cross a body of water like that and hold your footing without getting swept away. That's what Paul is urging for here from the Philippians when he says he wants to hear that they're standing firm. He wants to hear that they haven't been swept away by the force of persecution. And if you notice, there's a sense of struggle in this, of fighting against the currents of the culture. This point is amplified as Paul continues. He says he wants to hear that they're standing firm, quote, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here, Paul explains what this standing firm looks like. And this term for striving is the term athleo. That's a compound word that combines the verb athleo with the preposition soon. Soon means with or together with. Athleo is the word from which we get the term athlete. It means to contend or even to wrestle. You take these two concepts together and it would seem that the point is not that the Philippians are merely standing their ground, it's that they're contending actually. They're fighting, they're in a wrestling match and they're struggling to overcome an opponent who's trying to subdue them. And they're obviously doing this together. They're to, contending together as a unit, as a team. So maybe think of a football team trying to run the ball downfield. Snap after snap, the ball is handed off to the running back and the offensive line you know, pops up and smashes into their opponent and they try to push them down the field to make a hole for the running back. Over and over again, just trying to grind out yards through sheer willpower. That's a sense of this word Soon athleo. Paul wants the Philippians to contend in the same way that a football team is contending for yardage against their opponent. There's strain in this. Paul says he wants the Philippians to conduct themselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he says, So that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear that you are contending. This seems to be the base description that Paul supplies for heavenly mind of conduct in this particular situation of suffering. The citizens of heaven contend, they fight. It's kind of like when we go back to our own oath of allegiance as a nation. What is it that we make our citizens swear? Right? The oath of allegiance says that I will support and defend the constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law, that I will perform noncombatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by law. Do you hear that? What do we make the naturalized citizen swear? We make them swear that they will fight and that they will fight on behalf of the United States specifically. This is the primary obligation of citizenship. It's part of what defines the citizen. The citizen is obligated to fight on his country's behalf. And it's no different with the, with the, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. When there's a conflict that breaks out between the kingdom of heaven, and I don't know, let's say Rome, right? Or maybe even the United States of America. Or any other foreign prince, potentate state, or sovereignty. The kingdom citizen doesn't roll over and surrender. And they certainly don't switch sides. No, they fight. They contend for their heavenly kingdom, even if it brings them to be at odds with their earthly kingdom. Because their allegiances rest with that heavenly kingdom first and foremost. Just like our own oath requires the citizen to renounce any and all existing allegiances to other countries, so also does kingdom citizenship require the renunciation of all former allegiances. If that raises some concerns for you, you're not alone. You can bet that for a people like the Philippians, many of whom are most likely citizens of Rome, and who at the very least have chosen to reside in a Roman colony. This type of admonition would have raised some serious questions. This is most definitely not a people that relishes the opportunity to fight against Rome. These aren't zealots. They're more likely to be Roman patriots. And so to be told that they have to be willing to fight against Rome is going to raise questions like, When? When? Again, these aren't like the Jewish zealots who are itching for an excuse to lead a rebellion against Rome. These are Roman citizens who will fight against Rome if necessary, but who'd really rather avoid that outcome if possible. So when? are they supposed to fight? When is it necessary for them to contend? And even further, how? How do you go up against an empire as powerful as Rome? After all, by this point in history, the Roman Empire had already stood for around 400 years and it still had about another 500 to go before it would finally collapse. It is perhaps literally the most enduringly powerful empire in all of human history. So what does it even look like? to go up against a kingdom like this? Paul supplies the answers to these types of questions in verses 27 and 28 of this morning's passage. And while it's delivered in a context where Christians are probably subject to state-sponsored persecution, the instructions are just as helpful to those who are merely cultural pariahs. What does it look like for the heavenly-minded citizen to contend against the culture? Paul describes it in three ways. We have first an object, that is to say he tells us what we are to contend for. And then second, we have essentially two adverbs that describe to us how we are to contend. Let's begin by looking at the object. And that's the gospel. Kingdom citizens contend for the gospel. We see this at the end of verse 27. Paul says, starting at the beginning of the verse, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It probably goes beyond the intent of this text to say that we are to limit our engagements with the culture to gospel issues only. I tend to think that Scripture certainly articulates that viewpoint. We know, for instance, from 1 Peter 4, verses 15 and 16, that we're certainly not to suffer as evildoers, meaning our sin should not be the reason people reject us. We should be rejected, rather, because of our faith, because of our righteousness. In like manner, I think you can point to passages like Matthew five twenty-two, 22, uh, or sorry, Matthew 22, verses 15 and 22, where Jesus says it's, oh, it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar, and in John seven eighteen verses, uh, John 18, verse 37, where Jesus answers Pilate by saying that he is a king, but that his kingdom is not of this world. And you could argue that neither are we to suffer for the sake of political change. That's become a very popular concept of late, to think that we are to contend for cultural transformation. Personally, I don't think you find that concept Anywhere in the scripture, at least certainly not the idea that we're in any way required to advocate for that kind of change. You have admonitions like this uh, in the scripture, like this one to contend for the gospel, to contend for the truth as it regards the message of salvation. And no doubt, I tend to think that as we contend for that message and converts are made, the culture and even the political structures will be transformed. But that said, we're not told that we must contend for a change in these structures themselves. Instead, we're told to contend for the gospel. So, I certainly think that the scripture does indicate that the gospel is our battlefield. Even within the church, I think we can find admonitions to make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing and not allow the more minor doctrinal disputes to fracture the unity. Of the church. The, the gospel is to be our main point of contention, even within the church. But that said, that doesn't really appear to be the kind of thing that the Philippians are wrestling with. There's a phrase that's sometimes attached to fundamentalists, and that's the phrase fightin' fundy. Right? I don't know if you've ever heard that before, the fightin' fundies. And the thing that's ironic about that phrase is that it got attached to fundamentalists. After they more or less won their fight over the fundamentals of the faith, and then turned that same contentious mindset that they used to contend for the gospel inward and be, and began fighting with one another over more secondary and even third level doctrinal issues, stuff like dancing and card games and the length of your dress, you know issues that pertain to Christian liberty. they were so eager to fight that once they ran out of opponents they made new ones a fight within the church. That's rather ironic because that's not how the movement started. That's not what the phrase fundamentalist stands for. But unfortunately, there are Christians who are like that, who are always looking for a fight, and who aren't really happy unless they're convinced that someone hates them, even if the reason for that hatred has to do more with their own sinful conduct than it does with the gospel. The Philippians, though, they're not like that. They're on the other side of the spectrum. They'd really rather not fight. And so while I would agree that the Scripture does seem to more or less limit our sphere of contention to fundamentally gospel issues, I don't think we can say that this is what Paul is meaning to communicate here. He's not trying to rein the Philippians in by placing a ceiling on the kinds of things they're to contend for. Rather, he's trying to set a floor And he's saying, at minimum, at minimum, heavenly citizenship means contending for the gospel. Up to this point in all our discussions about the need to persevere for the sake of the gospel, this is actually one point that we haven't covered yet. Heavenly citizenship requires, it requires you to contend for the gospel. Looking down at verses 28-28, through 30. One more time, Paul notes that suffering is an unavoidable consequence of gospel faith. He says, starting at the end of verse 28, this, this meaning your perseverance with the gospel. This is a clear sign of destruction for them, referring to their opponents, but of your salvation and that from God. And what's from God? Grammatically, it would seem that Paul's referring to the entire concept that he's describing here. The Philippians' salvation, the conflict they're experiencing with their opponents, their opponents' destruction, the Philippians' perseverance, which is an evidence to their salvation. It's all from God. Paul explains what he means, how this is from God, saying, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The word for granted here is charizomai, and it's a form of the word charis, which is often translated as grace, and which also serves as the base word for charisma, which means gift. I think that this gives you a sense of what Paul's meaning with this term charizomai here. He's saying it's been given to the Philippians as an expression of God's grace, not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. See, you read Paul elsewhere, one of the things you learn is that he understood that faith in Christ ultimately resulted in conformity to Christ. And this is one of the gifts of being a Christian, being conformed to the image of Christ. Well, one of the marks of Christ is rejection by the world. And that rejection serves, of course, to condemn the world for their rejection of God's Son. Perseverance in the faith of rejection, in the face of rejection, on the other hand, serves as a witness to the Christian's new birth. It serves as a witness of their relationship with Christ and of their future hope in heaven. And so suffering for the gospel, so far from something to be avoided, is actually a sign of God's grace in the Christian's life. It is the inevitable fruit of Christ's likeness and therefore something to rejoice over. A lack of suffering, on the other hand, indicated a lack of participation in the Spirit of Christ, a lack of genuine faith, and is therefore to be lamented. This is what Paul means when he says that it's been granted to them not only to believe, but also to suffer. It's because for Paul, those ideas go hand in hand. The suffering is, in part, an evidence of the person's faith. It's that it's that unavoidable. And make no mistake, Jesus makes it very clear, the disciple who does not embrace this aspect of the gospel has absolutely no part in him. Matthew ten thirty two and 33, he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus expects his disciples to contend for his name. And he says if they're unwilling to contend for his name, then they're not really ready to be his disciple just yet. And they still have no part in him. You go into church history, and this was the witness of the early church as well. While I was studying this week, I came across a quote by Pliny the Younger. He was a Roman governor in Asia Minor around the turn of the first century. In this quote, Pliny is describing his investigations of the Christians in his district. He explains how he interrogated, tortured, and even executed Christians in an effort to discover the real truth about their religion. In one portion he says this, Meantime, this is the course I've taken with those who are accused before me as Christians. I asked them whether they were Christians, and if they confessed, I asked them a second and third time with threats of punishment. If they kept to it, I ordered them for execution. For I held no other questions uh, that whatever it was that they admitted, in any case, obstinacy and unbending perversity deserved to be punished. There were others of like insanity, but as these were Roman citizens, I noted them down to be sent to Rome." Are you catching that? Pliny is saying he was killing Christians, not because he could discern any real crime they had committed, but because at the very least they were stubborn. And stubborn people need to be made an example of. How would you like that? How would you like for the Roman governor to not even understand Why you refuse to burn incense to Caesar so that when you do refuse, he concludes that you're obviously just being stubborn for no good reason at all. That you're entirely unreasonable and that you deserve to be punished as a demonstration of what happens to subjects who are obstinate for no good reason. Pliny goes on to say that some Christians would eventually comply to his demands. He says some would recite a prayer to the gods that he would give to them. He'd tell them to make an offering of wine or, and, and, and incense before the image of Caesar, and they'd do it. He'd even tell them to curse Christ, and they'd do it. These Christians, he says, he let go, since he didn't see what harm there was. They were still yielding to Caesar. And whatever there is about Christianity that is so evil, they obviously didn't participate in it anymore. So what good is there in punishing them? They're completely harmless. Did you know that one of the great real controversies in the early church was what to do with people who had complied with the orders of men like Pliny and then later repented of their sin and wanted back into the church? This usually happened after things died down, after it was safe for a Christian uh, to be a Christian again. People who had renounced their faith would then come back to the church and say, you know, I made a mistake. I want back in. These Christians were called the lapsed. And one of the real controversies of the early church was whether or not to permit them back into the church after they repented. And the reason this was so controversial is because of what Jesus says in Matthew 10. And what Paul says here at the end of Philippians 1, part of Christ's likeness Includes suffering for the gospel. It's one's perseverance in suffering that serves as a sign of their salvation. The one who does not persevere, therefore, the one who does not contend for the faith, does not have faith. Their profession of faith isn't real. In short, many in the early church didn't deem these Christians' testimony credible. Because contending for the faith is, at bare minimum, both an obligation and evidence of kingdom citizenship. The lapsed could come back and declare their faith all they wanted, but in the eyes of these Christians, it didn't matter. They already knew of what sort they were, and they were frauds. Their faith wasn't real. Their professions were not to be believed. Consider this for a moment. Contending for the gospel is a bare minimum sort of requirement for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's not a requirement in the sense that it earns you entrance into the kingdom, but it is an obligation, and it's an obligation that God will enable the truly born-again Christian to fulfill as an expression of His grace, meaning you won't be saved because of your contention for the gospel, but at the same time, you won't be saved without it either. Does this type of striving mark your faith? Do you stand firm for the faith? Or are you ashamed of Christ? I remember back when I was in college, I didn't even like to pull my Bible out and read it while I was having lunch in the student union because I was afraid that someone might see me and say something about it. I can also remember coming across Jesus' words from Matthew 10 about that same time and realizing that I had a problem. I couldn't say I was a Christian and yet be ashamed of Christ at the same time. If I was going to claim Christ then I needed to stand with him and even suffer with him if necessary, or else I had no part in him. So do you stand firm for the faith? Or are you ashamed of Christ? That's one question you should ask yourself as you're pondering these words by Paul. Kingdom citizens contend for the gospel. With that in mind, how are we to contend for the gospel? There are two ways we can ask that question. We can think of it in terms of strategy, as in what's the best way to overcome an opponent as big and powerful as Rome, or we can think of it once again in light of our own personal identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. As much as the Philippians may wonder about the first of these two questions, it would seem that Paul is more interested in the second he wants their conduct to be worthy of the gospel of christ meaning he wants them to live lives that are befitting of their heavenly citizenship and he provides essentially two adverbial statements that describe what it means to contend for the gospel in this way and since we're starting to run short on time i'm going to touch on these two points briefly The first descriptor is the more important of the two. In fact, it's going to serve as the basis for Paul's exhortation in the next couple of passages. So what does it look like to contend for the the gospel in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ? Descriptor number one, it means contending in unity. That's the first description of heavenly-minded, gospel-oriented striving that we see in this passage. The Philippians are to contend for the gospel together we see this in verse 27 paul says that he wants to hear that the philippians are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel you can see quite clearly how paul emphasizes this idea in this verse the Philippians are to share the same mind, which means not so much that they're to think the exact same thing, but that they're to be united toward a common purpose. They're to set their mind on the same object, the same goal, which in context is the defense of the gospel. They're to, to, be, they're to be united in that purpose. And then, of course, they are to strive together, side by side toward. Here we see the soon part of soon athleo expressed quite explicitly. They are to contend together as one. It probably goes without saying that the church is strengthened when it contends together. You jump back to verse 14, for instance, and Paul mentions how the brothers have been emboldened by his imprisonment for the cause of Christ. And we see, of course, how this encourages Paul in his imprisonment. So there's this mutual strengthening that occurs when we all stand firm for the sake of the gospel. I mean, if you can think of an army holding a defensive line in battle, the unit is obviously stronger when every man holds his ground against the enemy. However, that's not really the reason that Paul urges for unity here. No, his reasoning here has less to do with what's effective and more to do with what's proper, what's appropriate for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. There are actually a couple of senses in which it's appropriate for the kingdom citizen to fight with this kind of unity. The main reason Paul will address in next week's passage. However, the basis even for what he's going to say next week, is found here. You see, this first reason comes up in the middle of verse 27, where he talks about standing firm in one spirit. By that, he's not saying that the Philippians should be unified in purpose. Again, that's what he means when he speaks of having one mind, that unified purpose. No, when he says one in spirit... He likely means one in the spirit, or even standing firm in the one spirit. Now we can know this from a number for a number of reasons, not the least of which comes in verse one of chapter two, where Paul is going to continue this exhortation by saying, If there's any participation in the spirit, And they should make Paul's joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Hopefully you can see the repetition of concepts here. So Paul is urging them to stand firm in the one spirit. And this goes to a concept that Paul covers in other epistles. In the book of Ephesians, for instance, which Paul also wrote while under house arrest in Rome, he writes, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You hear the similarity here? He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And he continues, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, there's one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope, to the one hope that belongs to your class. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Again, are you hearing this? At the very core of Judeo-Christian theology is the oneness of God. God is one. He's one in three persons, but He's still one, which means that all things actually are to be unified towards a singular purpose, and that's the glory of God. Well, the way this unification is brought to the individuals who make up the church is through the corporate indwelling of the same Spirit in the entire body of Christ. This one Spirit unites us together towards this singular purpose. And so as Paul considers what is proper for the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, he notes that it's fitting that they contend together for the gospel. How does this unity happen? I think Paul already told us. It's by standing firm in the one spirit. Just so you know, Paul indicates in his epistles to the Colossians and the Ephesians that to be filled with the spirit... Is to be filled with the Word. So the idea is that as we stand firm in the Spirit, by going back to the Scriptures over and over again, to know what our purpose is, it's then that we'll reach the mutual conviction that we are all to be dedicated to the advancement and defense of the Gospel. This is how we gain unity of mind. We stand firm in the Spirit who convicts us that we are all to be working towards this singular purpose of contending for the Gospel. It's amazing, you know, in times of extreme warfare, entire nations will sometimes bind together and devote all their resources to the national defense. For example, during World War II, women stopped wearing nylons so the material could be used to make parachutes instead of pantyhose. They entered into factories and started to do the jobs that the men now at war used to do, building airplanes and battleships for the war effort. Major League Baseball players Quit playing baseball and joined the service. Ted Williams went from hitting 400 for the Boston Red Sox to flying airplanes for the U.S. Navy. Families planted victory gardens to drive produce prices down and allow the War Department to spend money on tanks instead of tomatoes. The whole nation united towards a singular purpose. It's supposed to work the same way in the Kingdom of Heaven's fight against this world. So I'd, again, I'd ask you, are you united together with the rest of the church for this singular purpose? Are you of the same mind with the body of Christ, fighting towards the same goal? Or are you contending with your brothers and sisters for your own purposes? Are you acting like the people of Israel during the time of Judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes? part of our kingdom citizenship means that we should be united together in the mutual defense of our heavenly kingdom. We are to be united together for a single, the singular purpose of advancing heaven's borders. So is that your goal? Or do you have your own agenda? Are you striving after your own goals? This is another question you should ask yourself as you reflect on these words by Paul. Kingdom citizens contend together. We fight in unity for the same purpose. Descriptor number two, kingdom citizens not only contend for the gospel together, they also contend without fear. They contend without fear. And Paul notes this at the beginning of verse 28. He says he wants to hear that they're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel quote, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The reason the Christian should contend without fear almost goes without saying. Still, you see it come out in the very next statement. Paul says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew ten twenty eight when he says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The power of men like Caesar is limited. At most, they can kill the body. But after that, there's nothing more they can do. The one you really need to fear is the one who has power over your soul. Well, guess what this opposition means then? It means two things, actually. On the one hand, this opposition against the Philippians demonstrates that These opponents are in opposition to God himself. They're in opposition to the one who does have power over the soul. So guess what that means? It means that their opposition is a sign of their destruction. It's a sign that their power is about to end. But on the other hand, for those who persevere in the faith, it's a sign that they're on God's side. They're on the same team as the one who has power over the soul. And that means that after death, they will yet live. The same God who resurrected Jesus from the dead will give life to their mortal bodies through this one spirit that dwells inside of them. So do they have anything to fear? Do the Philippians have anything to fear in this situation? Does the Christian have anything to fear when they face this kind of opposition for their faith? Absolutely not. It's like what we saw last week. Paul was able to rejoice even in the face of death because it only meant the prospect of unending joy in the presence of Christ. Death is but a homecoming for the Christian. It's when they get called off the mission field and get to return home for rest. It's when the king ends the ambassador's assignment and asks them to return back to their homeland. This is essentially what we are in this life. We're ambassadors of Christ. Churches are but foreign embassies for this heavenly kingdom. They're here to communicate the will of the king to those who are at war against his kingdom and to offer terms for peace. Listen, would an ambassador dread being called off his foreign assignment? Would he fear to go home again? Of course not. He'd rejoice over it. And in the same way, we as kingdom citizens should not fear the opposition of our opponents. Their power is limited. Their fate is sealed. The king is coming. And when he comes, he will win. There's nothing they can ultimately take from us. Yes, they can make us suffer for a time, but that time is limited. And the ultimate outcome decided. And at the end of the day, we have the guarantee that we will return home. So why would we fear? What have we to be afraid of? In the words of FDR, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. It's fear alone that paralyzes the advance of the kingdom. And so if we have anything to fear, it is indeed fear itself. And with that in mind, I'd like to close by asking the same question I asked at the conclusion of last week's message. And that's, what are you waiting for? We've already noted that probably the single biggest obstacle facing the church's evangelistic witness today is our fear. We love comfort. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it hasn't been given to you to live comfortably. It's been given to you for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ, meaning it's been given to you as a gift to Him, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. God has brought you to life to proclaim Jesus, which means in part that He's brought you alive to suffer because that's what we're bound to encounter in this world as we're conformed to the image of Christ. But that said, we as citizens of the kingdom of heaven still have nothing to fear. Because we serve a great and powerful king whose name will eventually be vindicated at the return of Christ. So what are you waiting for? What are you afraid of? It's not fitting for the subjects of so great a king to be afraid. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's all together as one body proclaim him without fear. Why don't we go ahead and close this morning by praying to that end. Let's pray.